Well, for anybody who is new or whom I haven't met, I'm Jonathan Cully, Executive Pastor at Covenant Church. And I just want to reiterate today, just like I did last week, that Covenant Church is praying for you. We're supportive of you. We're cheering for you. And uh, we want to see the light of the gospel shine for this church to flourish in South Palm Bay in this area for people's lives to be changed and continue to, you know, to see people come to Christ and be discipled and be developed and to, for their gifts to be uh, used and for his kingdom to, to grow. That is our desire as a church. And uh, now we're going to turn to our passage in just a minute uh, just to set this up. <clears throat> the, uh, there, you know, there are just places in the scriptures where Jesus in the Gospels, he doesn't mince any words, you know, and, and what we're going to look at today is a, a very strong rallying cry for mission, to be on mission with a singular purpose and a singular devotion to renounce and forsake all other interests in order to follow Jesus and to be on mission for him, okay? But there's a surprising development in this passage that, that I hope to uncover, that the power source for that mission is kind of unexpected. Uh, I hope to show you that this kind of hard work, it, it shouldn't have to feel like drudgery, uh, that being on mission for Jesus and expanding his kingdom should be a, uh, a place where joy can be cultivated. And, and not that it always feels happy-go-lucky, but that joy, deep-level joy, can be cultivated in being on mission for Jesus. The passage I'm going to be reading is the very end of Luke chapter 9 and into uh, chapter 10. The, the passage I'll be preaching from is actually in chapter 10, verses 17 through 21, but I'm going to read some selections before that just to kind of set up the context. So we'll start with Luke chapter 9 uh, in verse 57. Hear the word of the Lord. As they, that's the disciples, were walking along the road, a man said to him, to Jesus, I'll follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He said to another man, follow me. But he replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. And still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for, the ser- for service in the kingdom of God. Chapter 10, verse 1. And after this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them two by two a- ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. He told them, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. And skipping down to verse 8. When you enter a town and are welcomed, eat what is offered to you. Heal the sick who are there and tell them the kingdom of God has come near to you. And skipping down to verse 17. These 72 returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. He replied, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. However, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. 
At that time, Jesus, full of joy through the Holy Spirit, said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and the learned and revealed them to little, little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. Heavenly Father, we pray that as we unpack this text, that you would fill us with your spirit, that you would give us ears to hear what you have for us. Our desire is not just to hear biblical truth, but to be transformed into Christ-likeness. And that can only happen by the ministry of the Spirit, so we pray for that. Help me to speak uh, in a way that is faithful to your word, that you would be pleased with our worship in the reading and preaching of your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. So here's the bottom line up front. Joy is the power source for mission. Joy is the power source for mission. Another way to put it is if we don't get joy right, we will not get mission right. Because you and I both know, right, that we can be busy, we can be working really, really hard, and it can be for the church, it can be for uh, kingdom priorities. But if joy is not at the root system of that work, uh, it will quickly fade. You know, our motivation will quickly fade. And so we're going to see kind of a progression, a development in this text. So first, being on mission for God is more joyful than being on mission for any, anything or anyone else. Second, if our mission for God is not fueled by joy, we will find ourselves running on fumes and burning out. And third, we're going to look at the source or the wellspring of that joy. Where does that joy actually come from? So first, <clears throat> let's look at the joy in what we do for God. And this is in contrast to joy that we seek to find in being on some other kind of mission besides God's mission. Uh, think for a minute what it means to be on mission for God. I mean, it's such a nebulous concept. It's such a broad category. Uh, I think it would be good just to do a really quick reminder from the book of Genesis that we were created in the image of God to be vice regents or stewards of creation, stewards of God's blessing on us, stewards of how he made human beings through Adam and Eve to fill the earth and subdue it, make this world beautiful for God. Uh, And that's through, uh, you know, order and beauty by working hard when we go to work. It doesn't have to be at church, but when we go to work, that's a sacred thing because we're showing off the order and beauty of God because he's made us to be creative and to be uh, reflectors of his order and beauty. And so that's, so we're on mission when we go to work representing him in those ways. We're also on mission when, with God or for God when we are uh, seeking to make disciples, right? Jesus gave a clear mission in Matthew chapter 28 that in order for other images of God who are unregenerate, who don't know that their sins can be forgiven, who don't know that they can have a mission that's worth following, we seek to lead them to Christ and pray for their salvation so they can come alive. And so they can uh, now reorient all of their purposes in life to the one purpose of making much of God in their families, in their personal lives, in their workplace. Uh, we also think of the mission as including anywhere in this fallen world that is, is broken or, um, or not bringing glory to God. 
places where it's, it's ugly and not beautiful, disordered rather than ordered, and we seek to bring healing to these places of brokenness in this world. So it's making disciples. It's uh, showing off God in our work and our relationships. It's spending the, uh, the resources that God has given us for the sake of others to build others up with the blessings that God has given us. So there's all kinds of ways, and this is just kind of a, just a sampling, right, of just some of the details of what it means to be on mission for God. One way to think of this is that you can maybe think of the root, the root of this as, who is my Lord? And the answer to that question is whose mission you're on. So if Jesus is my Lord, then all of the ramifications of that through my life will show that, he, that, that we're on mission for him because he's the king. He's the one we're seeking to live our lives for. As opposed to me, there's only, a, there's only one other choice, that I can be my own Lord, I can be my own king, call the shots in my own life, do what I want to do. Now, we, I don't think of that in my head consciously, Basically, even, if, even as Christians, we struggle with self-lordship. That's what sin is. At the root of all sin is, is me saying or us saying, you know what, I know better than God. You know, I'm going to uh, call the shots here. You know, I'm going to uh, find a way to satisfy this craving or whatever. But either Jesus is Lord or we are Lord. We know that nobody but Jesus can be Lord, but we pretend, Right. So that's the the source of our mission. Now, when we look at our text, Jesus had sent out 72 of his disciples on mission. He told them, go to these villages, talk to people, whoever is sick or broken, provide a healing touch, provide encouraging words, share the gospel, lead them to Christ. And they did that, and they were very successful. We see this in uh, uh, chapter 10, verses 1, and 1, 8, and 9, and 17. So here's where it says that. The Lord appointed them and sent them out two by two. Verse 8, Jesus said, When you enter a town and are welcomed, eat what is offered to you, heal the sick who are there, and tell them the kingdom of God has come near to you. And the 72 returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. So they were fulfilling the mission that God had for them. The centerpiece of it there is, is, in, is there in verse 9. Tell them the kingdom of God has come near to you. In other words, there's another king. And in order to reorient our whole life purpose uh, to have a meaningful mission for our lives, we have to dethrone ourselves and enthrone this new king in our lives. That's why it's so important for our mission to have the king at the center, that the kingdom of God has come near to you. Now, would you say that they're successful? Did they actually do amazing ministry in these towns and villages? Yes. They healed the sick. They raised the dead. They cast out demons. They preached the gospel. People were getting saved. Would that make you happy? Would you be joyful if you saw broken things getting mended right in front of your eyes? That would make me elated, right? And, and the Bible talks about that kind of joy that when one sinner repents, Legions of angels rejoice, right? There's a lot of joy that can come from a successful kingdom mission. And it's so worth it to be on that kind of mission. Uh, and so here's the principles. So you'll see some of the slides behind me here that have these principles. It's always more joyful to live on mission for God rather than 
for self. No one can serve two masters, right? Jesus says this. And being on mission and doing this kind of hard work is worth it. And in a way, it simplifies our lives. It's really hard to serve God and idols. It's, you know, it's complicated, right? And uh, if we can just simplify our hearts down to one Lord, uh, it really helps us to focus our lives. Now, we're going to see how Jesus responds to the disciples. So they're happy. They're high-fiving each other. They're like, I can't believe that when Jesus sent us out to do this, that people actually were helped, that people were saved. And look at what Jesus says in verse, uh, verses 18 and 19. He says, this was his response, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. This is a really strange text. Um, what's he doing here? He is encouraging them. He's, he's patting them on the back and saying, good job. You guys did a really good job. But this is kind of an otherworldly, very strange way to say that, right? Uh, when my boys are right over here, uh, when they clean the rooms without being asked, which is kind of a, it's rare, you know, it's a, it, but it's a sight to behold, you know? It's, it's a sight. And, I, you know, can you imagine me as the dad coming in and saying, guys, I saw Satan fall like lightning when I saw your room get clean like that. Uh, and by the way, here's a box of snakes that you can step on. I mean, it just, it, it's otherworldly. So what is Jesus saying here? This phrase, I saw Satan fall, fall like lightning. This is imagery of a cosmic battle that's going on that's unseen. It's hidden. He's saying something really big is happening when you do ordinary, hard ministry work. Something cosmic is happening that you can't see. And just little words of encouragement to someone, little moments where you set aside your own agenda to, to listen well to a friend, to be present when they're hurting, serving by bring, bringing a meal or visiting them in the hospital, inviting your neighbors over for dinner, you know, or something. Little, what we think of as like throwaway, you know, activities that's not all that hard to do, maybe, or we just don't think of it as engaging in cosmic warfare. But Jesus is saying these kinds of things where we, where we subdue our own preferences and our own um, selfish desires, and we live our lives oriented to the other and serving and building up others, that causes Satan to fall like lightning in those moments. It's powerful. We can't see it, but that's why we have faith. We have the eyes of faith to connect the dots that little moments of love and kindness actually destroy the work of the kingdom of darkness. It, it acts to push back the kingdom of darkness with light. And imagine an army of people doing this, right? And we don't get it right all the time. We mess it up and we do get selfish and we get, you know, all wrapped around the axle. Uh, but God is faithful, right? He doesn't need us for his mission, but he invites us into it. Uh, but he is saying that there is a cosmic dimension to these kinds of things. Now, the, the phrase about trampling on snakes and scorpions, he's not being literal there. He's actually going back to Genesis and, and, and pointing back to Genesis chapter 3, where we see uh, the snake crusher, right? In uh, chapter 3, verse 15, he says, God says to Adam, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. And that's the first 
hint or glimpse of the gospel to come where a descendant of Adam and Eve was going to crush Satan, crush the serpent. Uh, And we see that theme kind of repeated throughout uh, uh, the Bible and resulting in the dragon. That's a full-grown snake, so to speak, that's destroyed at the end of Revelation. And then he says, nothing will harm you. Now, he obviously can't mean that we have this bubble, like a literal bubble of protection around us where we can't even stub our toes. He's not talking about that kind of protection. And think about this, the story of the disciples and how the disciples died, you know? What about John the Baptist? He was beheaded in prison. Um, His life did not go well. He was harmed, right? Um, Most of the disciples uh, were killed in brutal ways. I mean, Peter was crucified upside down for not renouncing the lordship of Christ in his life. So what does he mean here? It's helpful to know a theme in the Bible that there's a difference between the earthly you and the real you, the one that's going to last for eternity. And when he looks at them and says, nothing is going to harm them, people can take their bodies, their lives, kill the body, but they can't kill the soul, right? Uh, If you are in Christ, you are immortal. You will live forever. And there will be a day when we all have to pass through death, that gateway, right? And be resurrected with Christ. And we will have glorified bodies. I've really appreciated uh, Pastor Hardy last week talking about that new heavens and new earth, right? That if you are in Christ, that's guaranteed. And that's the real you, And we don't have to wait until the day we die to get eternal life and to have that. We have it now. If you are in Christ, behold, new creation. If anyone is in Christ, 2 Corinthians 5.17, he is a new creation now. Okay? And so you have come alive in Christ now if you have faith in him. And that will continue on into eternity. That's the you that cannot be harmed, cannot be destroyed. Does that make sense? So a lot of things can happen to us in this life, but we do not have to fear we don't have to run from it. We don't have to be concerned and anxious and, and fearful of that. So here's this principle. When we take the risk to engage in God's mission, even with our weak, small, feeble efforts, it, is, it does far more damage to the kingdom of darkness than we can imagine. It's a powerful principle. But what happens when things keep going wrong, right? You pray for someone's salvation, a friend, maybe a child, maybe a family member, You've been praying for decades for this person to come to Christ. Uh, Someone develops a disease. You work hard. It doesn't seem to produce any fruit. What happens when you keep bumping your head against reality in this life? And it's just so hard. Like, what what is in it (laughs) to put all this work into something? Uh, Trying to stomp on these snakes, they just won't die. How can we be joyful when this mission just keeps failing in our eyes, what we think is, is failure. So let's turn to that next uh, point. What keeps us in the game, so to speak? And this is the second point, joy in what God does for us. So let me just tell you a story. Some of you in this room uh, were with me at Covenant years ago in 2006. I was ordained as a pastor at Covenant in 2006. Within the year, there was a church split and our senior pastor resigned. Uh, it was also the year that, um, that Michelle and I had a miscarriage, the first pregnancy. It was devastating. Um, that particular church split was 
incredibly difficult for me personally. It was difficult for everybody. Um, I almost left the ministry. I almost, within a year, I had just gotten ordained. I, I, I was at the point where I felt like I was trying to stop a moving freight train by myself. You know, I knew I wasn't alone, but I kind of felt that way, right? Just putting on burdens and stuff on myself. And there's this passage that we're looking at today. I don't know how I came across it, but God gave me this passage that changed everything. So let me try to connect the dots here. In verse 19, as we looked at it, he, Jesus says to these disciples, I saw Satan fall like lightning. I have given you authority to trample on snakes. He, again, he's, he's saying, good job, guys. He's encouraging them for a job well done. But then in verse 20, look at this. He does something surprising. It's even unsettling. He says, however, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Clearly, Jesus... We, he, he does want us to be joyful about successful ministry. But if we base the root of our joy on ministry, even when it's very successful, like these disciples we're experiencing, we are going to be incredibly discouraged and anxious our entire earthly lives unless something changes, right? What he's doing here is he's changing the root system of our joy. He's saying, if you put your joy on ministry success, on life success, on what you know is actually glorifies God, and you work hard for that, even when it's successful, it's not where the root system of your joy should be. What is it that our, root, that, that our joy should be based on? It's right here, that your names are written in heaven. That your names are written in heaven. This is actually unsettling because... Uh, and I'll, just, I'll speak for myself. I know that I'm speaking for probably all of us at some level. I have a tendency to feel good about myself when things go well. I have a tendency to beat myself up when things don't go well. Right? I, I know that's not true. I know that I'm accepted because of God's grace. I know that, uh, you know, that there's nothing I can do successfully to earn God's favor. I, I, you know, we, we know this. But it's... There's a deep-rooted, I think, idolatry that we all feel and we experience, maybe in different ways, um, that our identity is tied up with our performance in life. Um, And it can be devastating, right? It can puff us up in pride when things are going well. It can devastate us when things go sideways. It's an exhausting way to live. And so Jesus knew this. He loves us too much to let us continue with that. He loved these disciples. He said, good job, guys, but don't base your joy on that. If you do, it'll crush you. Base your joy on something that you cannot do for yourself, that your names are written in heaven. So here's this principle. Don't base your joy on what you can do for Jesus, but what Jesus has already done for you. Now, the reason that's unsettling is because part of our flesh kind of wants a little bit of credit. Our flesh wants to have a little bit of stake in the end result of fruitfulness and productivity and mission and things that get done, right? Um, if we're really honest with ourselves, it's, it's, a, it's a very deep, uh, deep-rooted problem. So what has Jesus done for us? Remember the mission from Genesis 3? The image of God was meant to represent God and his lordship by multiplying, filling the earth, making it beautiful for God, we failed at that. So the fall happened because of sin. 
because we put ourselves on the throne of our own hearts. And another human had to come and be the perfect image of God for us. Someone had to come and not only pay for the sins, right? Not only pay for the sins by dying on the cross, but also positively to live the perfect life that we were meant to live, do the perfect mission that we were meant to do from the garden. Does that make sense? And basically represent us, uh, you know, taking the sin off of us and nailing it to the cross, but also winning and achieving the mission, the obedience, the righteousness that we failed to achieve. When you realize that this mission is actually God's mission, and he sent his own missionary to make it happen, Jesus, uh, and all who are in Christ get to participate in, in fleshing out that mission in the world, but he's the one that's on mission. He's the one that redeems and saves and changes the hearts to make this a desirable thing, to dethrone ourselves, to enthrone Christ so that he would be glorified. And so that, that's how it all comes full circle. But that's what he's done for us. Our names written in heaven means that for all who are in Christ by faith, you are guaranteed to be in the new heavens and new earth one day, to be with God. You are guaranteed and nothing can take that away right? And so the kind of joy that Jesus is talking about here helps us in a way to suffer well too, right? To be encouraged and to move forward in mission, but also to suffer well. Uh, there's a young, young lady at Covenant Church, this is several years ago, her name is Kimberly, and she had suffered a lot of nerve damage to her legs, and she had written about this experience um, in her blog, and she had given me permission to read some of this. So just little snippets of her blog during that time, and you can imagine she couldn't, she couldn't stand up fully because her legs couldn't extend all the way. She couldn't sit down fully. And so she kind of was stuck in this in-between, and it was just a, a debilitating kind of pain and uh, could not seem to, to find the right doctor to, to see what that was about and bring some healing and relief. But she wrote this, My suffering was necessary, necessary for me to learn what true reliance looked like Before dealing with this pain, it was very easy for me to rely on other people for my joy and my satisfaction. The pain I experienced took a lot away from me, including uh, people, my legs, and my time. So I was often left with nothing but the Lord's promise of love and protection. And then a little later in her blog post, she wrote this, I found joy through the pain because I realized the beauty of it. It was necessary for Jesus to suffer for us so that we can experience joy in heaven, just like it was necessary for me to suffer so that I could taste and see the coming joy on a deeper level. And so she was learning as a young woman to find fellowship as hard as it was, to find fellowship in the sufferings of Christ and to cultivate the joy there. And and she did not feel joyful, right, all the time. And so this leads us now to uh, our third point. So we've seen point one, that it's good to base our joy on kingdom mission and success and fruitfulness on mission for God. We've seen that the true basis of our joy is not what we can do for Jesus, but what he's done for us in the gospel. Now, here's the wellspring, the power source. Verse 21, so this is, God, this is joy in God's overflowing joy in himself. God's overflowing joy in himself. Verse 21, Jesus, full of joy through the Holy Spirit, said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this is what, we were, what you were pleased to do. 
God is a joyful God. That's hard, actually, for some of us to believe. Um, part of the story of my life is wrestling with a lie uh, that I know some of you struggle with. And it's thinking of God as, as a uh, kind of as a mean God. Now, I'd never think that consciously, but like he's waiting to strike or wait, you know, waiting to catch, catch me in something. You know, oh, there you go. You're a sinner, right? Or just such high standards that, uh, well, why even try, right? Uh, and the irony of this is that the standards are actually higher than we realize. It's actually worse than you think. <laughs> okay. Be holy for I am holy. And, and the point is that this God is so holy and so just, we can't even wrap our head around it. Uh, and it, and it should crush us, but what it should do is drive us to Jesus, where we realize I can't do life on my own. I need Jesus. I can't figure this out on my own. I need Jesus. And verse 21, you see this, this window into the Trinity. You have Jesus who's full of joy through the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit is the agent of Jesus' joy in this text. And then you see the pleasure of God. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. And so think about the progression we started with Jesus calling people to follow him at all costs. And people were saying, oh, I'll follow you, I'll follow you. He said, no, you won't. That, now, that wasn't a very good uh, church growth strategy, right? He's showing people the door, right? He's basically saying, you have to be all in. You cannot be on the fence. You have to work hard for this mission. You have to cast off all other missions in your life and be on point, on focus, on mission for me. And then he reorients the, 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 uh, the root system of joy. He says, but don't rejoice that you do good work. Rejoice that I've done good work for you, right? So there's that progression. And now you have this incredible moment where Jesus is just relishing in the joy in prayer with the Father through the agency of the Holy Spirit. It's basically like he's kind of giggling to himself a little bit. It's like, I love this. I love the joy that I have with you, Father, and Holy Spirit. And there's an inner joy there. It's mysterious, but we get a little glimpse of it here. And he talks about here what he is joyful about. Oh, actually, let me back up. Let me read a real quick quote from John Piper about this idea of the inner joy of the Trinity. This is from his book, The Pleasures of God. He says, we need to see first and foremost that God is God, that he is perfect and complete in himself, that he is overflowingly happy in the eternal fellowship of the Trinity, and that he does not need us to complete his fullness and is not deficient without us. Rather, we are deficient without him. The all-sufficient glory of God, freely given in fellowship through his sacrificed son, is the stream of living water that we have thirsted for all of our lives. The inner joy of the Trinity is your salvation. That's where our joy comes from. So the principle here is that previously we saw that we are joyful because we are saved. We are joyful because we're saved. But in this point, this last point, we're going to see that we are saved because God is joyful. That it starts with God. Salvation starts with God and our joy starts with God. It's kind of the idea, you know, when uh, Jacob Morris is our student ministry director, he's been there a couple years now. He's actually going to preach next week, so you'll get to meet him. Um, when, they, when they first moved down from Michigan, they had never been to Florida. And, uh, you know, they moved in and stuff. They, I was like, oh, yeah, we're near Cape Canaveral with all the SpaceX launches, right? 
And uh, I said, hey, you know, I texted Jacob, hey, five minutes from now, you know, there's going to be a SpaceX, uh, you know, launch. And he said, oh, my goodness. And so, you know, he's gathering up the kids and, and coming out to the, to the front, you know, the front of his house. And uh, it, was, it was a little bit of a joy to, to hear his excitement about it, right? I mean, for us, it's like, yeah, whatever. Um, but for him, it's like, man, what a, what, a t- what a day to be alive. You know, he's expressing it like that. And, uh, and so the idea of Jesus revealing himself to people, the most unlikely people, the ones who can't help themselves, the, one who, the ones who can't do anything about their situation, he delights to come in and save and bring life and bring joy. And so we who have experienced this want others in on this joy, right? And so that's what mission is. Why would I work hard to open my home for hospitality for neighbors? Why would I work hard to go do service projects and help out local schools and things like that? Why would we do that and use our time to do that? It's because of the joy that we have in Jesus. So he talks about little children, and he's inviting us to think about, yeah, speaking of, this was right on cue. (laughs) Hey, kids. Um, Jesus is inviting us to think about the differences between adults and children. Adults are suspicious of authority. Children tend to trust authority. Adults assume people are out to harm them. Children assume people are out to help them. Adults know how to hide their feelings. Children can't help but express their feelings, right? Adults are refined and civil. Children are messy. Uh, Adults tend to be cynical. Children tend to be hopeful. Adults tend to hunker down and survive. Children tend to explore and look for wonder in the world. Adults figure, figure things out, then commit. Children commit, then figure things out. So Jesus is delighting in the Father in this prayer. And he says, I love when people realize they can do nothing without the power that I can give them. And when, when, uh, when they realize that they come to, come to faith like little children, you know, Dave mentioned in his prayer, coming like little children, dependent, not cynical and hardened, uh, God swoops in, rushes in, right, when we recognize that we need him. So this principle, God finds great joy in revealing himself to the most unlikely and undeserving people, and sometimes in the most unlikely ways, uh, most unlikely circumstances. Paul Miller in his book, A Praying Life, puts it this way, the only way to come to God is by taking off any spiritual mask. You have to begin with what is real. Jesus didn't come for the righteous. He came for sinners. All of us qualify, right? All of us qualify. The very things we try to get rid of, our weariness, our distractedness, our messiness, are what gets us in the front door. That's how the gospel works. Now, if that's true, that's good news. There's not a single human being on planet Earth who is out of the reach of God's grace. And if that's true, we can be on mission for Jesus, fueled by joy. We get to be a part of what he's already doing. It's not that we make it happen. Jesus is going to make it happen, and we get to join him in that. So this last slide here just shows kind of a progression. There's layers of this joy. So God's joy in himself overflows into our joy in being saved, which then overflows into our joy in God's mission. 
Let me just say just a couple quick applications and we'll close. Some of you are experiencing deep grief and deep pain. There's suffering uh, everywhere, but some of you are in particularly a difficult situation. Joy is not something we feel all the time, right? It's not something that we feel all the time. You're not saved by joyful feelings. You're saved by the Lord Jesus Christ, right? That's a big difference. When you realize that, then you can be free to grieve, to hurt, to lean into God with all the messiness and not having any answers. We can demand of God the answers or we can serve the God of the answers and have some mysteries in our lives, right? But we can lean in with all of the messiness and the hurt. You know, I love in the Psalms, so many things I can say about the Psalms. A third of them are griefs and laments, right? Psalm 126.5 says, Those who sow with tears will reap with songs of joy. Sowing takes intentionality. Planting our tears like, like seeds in the ground. And what he's saying there is those tears are meaningful. He captures the tears into bottles that we see in Revelation. He cares about our hurts and our tears. But we can plant them in the soil of faith, and there will be a harvest that we can't see yet. God will use our tears to bring uh, bountiful joy. God cares about that. Second, those of you, for those of you who are thinking about Jesus or considering Christianity but haven't fully committed your life to him yet, I invite you to consider that God really, really wants you to be joyful. He wants you to have a joyful life. And the only way that you can get to that joyful life is de- to dethrone yourself, turn from your sins, and embrace Christ, the one who did your life for you and died on the cross to pay for your sins for you. He's not a stingy, crabby, aloof God. He's for you and wants you to come into this life. And, and finally, I want to address those of you who love Jesus. You're trying to lead others to Christ. You're working hard to lead your church, your family, your neighbors. You're working hard in the kingdom, but it can be discouraging. You can feel attacked and lonely at times. You can feel frustrated about this. I encourage you to, to, to treat this passage as a, as a wellspring of truth and life for you. That is not your mission, it's his. He's done everything for you that you need for eternal life. The pressure's off. Now join him in mission because he's going to get it done. When we cultivate this kind of deep joy in God, we'll naturally, of course, overflow into joy in the lives of others. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you for this passage. Thank you that you remind us of the gospel, that you did for us what we could not do for ourselves. Ministry is hard work. Being a part of the body, uh, the, the visible church, it's hard work. Uh, we, have to, we have to serve one another. We have to love one another, and we're sinners, um, and that's hard at times. You call us to love our neighbors as ourselves. Um, these are people who don't know you and don't have uh, the value system that we do as Christians. And so that's hard. And yet you call us to love even our enemies because we were once enemies and you pursued us with your love. So this mission is hard. We put this before you, Lord, um, and acknowledge that it's impossible without your grace. We thank you that you've done everything for us to give us Uh, joy unspeakable, joy inexpressible, as Peter puts it. 
that you want us to be joyful, that you want us to find life, to drink from the well of your grace. I pray, Lord, that you would help us in whatever areas that we're struggling. Help us turn from our self-centeredness. Help us to lay our lives down for others in little ways, in our families, our neighbors, our workplace, to be on mission for you because it's so delightful. Lord, we love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.